We'll return to Drs. Brenner and Loneal soon, but first, Dr. Maury Gertz visits the practice of Dr. Eric Rupard in West Reading, Pennsylvania, and to begin, Dr. Rupard presents an older man who presented with anemia and renal failure. So our first patient was a 72-year-old Caucasian male who presented with an upper respiratory infection, and he had labs that showed a significant anemia and renal failure. He ended up being admitted to the hospital, and his workup included an SPEP, and he had an M-spike of 2.5 grams per deciliter. This was IgG kappa. The rest of his myeloma workup showed no lytic lesions on a bone survey. His calcium was within normal limits. And a bone marrow biopsy showed that this unfortunate gentleman had 70% plasmacytosis and very complex cytogenetics, one of these sort of three-line cytogenetics with multiple tetrasomies, trisomies, and some monosomies. So his treatment initially was bortezomib and dexamethasone. That was started in October of 2012, and then a few months later, we added lenalidomide to that combination. And he had a nice response. His repeat bone marrow biopsy in March showed 15% plasma cells. So he was given a single cycle of cyclophosphamide kind of to prepare him for transplant. And a repeat biopsy showed 4% plasma cells, and he underwent a transplant. A couple of months later, on July 5th, complicated modestly by some atrial fibrillation and C. diff post-transplant, but has generally done well since that time. He is not somebody that I had placed on maintenance treatment, and that was one of my questions that I had for Dr. Gertz today. The most recent SPEP that we've got on him shows, that was back in November of 13, shows a stable, kind of small, almost undefinable monoclonal IgG kappa, which had actually decreased from his just pre-transplant level. So, Maury, maybe you can just talk a little bit about your impressions about this patient. So a lot of teaching points here. First of all, this patient at age 72 underwent a very uncomplicated autologous stem cell transplant, and I think that reflects the culture of the United States that fit patients without regard to their chronologic age are suitable candidates for transplant. Secondly, this is one of the 20% of patients who presents with cast nephropathy, and it showed the very rapid response of the renal failure to bortezomib-based therapy. The third piece, actually, is that although this patient had very complex metaphase cytogenetics, they actually weren't adverse prognosis. Hyperdiploidy, when you see it in metaphase cytogenetic analysis, actually carries a favorable prognosis. And when you have patients who are part hyperdiploid and part hypodiploid, particularly deletion 13, the hyperdiploid trumps, and these patients do not have an adverse prognosis. Obviously, FISH analysis can add to that, but this patient's metaphase, although three lines, are not necessarily bad. But the crux of this patient is this patient has achieved a near-complete response with the G-kappa detectable by immunofixation only and what to do about the conundrum of maintenance therapy. And right now, it's complex because we've got three studies that looked at maintenance therapy after induction. All three appeared in the same New England Journal issue, one of them, was a non-transplant cohort headed by the Italian Gymema group, which was melphalan-prednisone lenalidomide versus melphalan-prednisone versus melphalan-prednisone lenalidomide with lenalidomide maintenance. And this 
did not show a survival benefit. And then there are two transplant studies, both of which showed significant prolongation of progression-free survival, which is all well and good, but at the end of the day, what we really are looking for with maintenance therapy is living longer. And one of them, the US-based SWOG intergroup study headed by McCarthy, shows a clear-cut, statistically significant survival advantage. But the French study, the IFM study, did not show a survival advantage. Those results were updated at ASH in New Orleans, December 2013, and continue with longer follow-up to fail to show a survival advantage. All three studies demonstrate that increased risk of second primary malignancies, although that risk is dwarfed by the risk of death due to multiple myeloma to maintain a little perspective. But really, based on the literature, I don't think we can say that there's a guideline or consensus that clearly demonstrates whether you should or should not take maintenance. And so it ends up being with every single patient a discussion of the pros and cons because if you point to one study, it's clear that there's benefit. You point to the other study, it's not clear that there's benefit. And so this patient isn't on maintenance, and that's fine. So one other thing about the issue of maintenance that I wanted to ask you about, Maury, is the question of consolidation. Because if I understand correctly, that French trial that you said did not show survival benefit, they actually used consolidation. What are your thoughts about that? And what about this issue of consolidation? It's a very important point because the two trials were fundamentally different because all the patients in the French trial received two cycles of post-transplant consolidation therapy that was lenalidomide-based. And so that raises the question, if there's not a survival difference, is it because the patients received lenalidomide-based consolidation? And so that gets everyone a buzz thinking, well, maybe we can get away with two months of consolidation therapy rather than uh, prolonged exposure for maintenance. And so it becomes very, very legitimate. And there are actually quite a number of studies, including the Hovan study that used post-transplant consolidation that was bortezomib anthalidomide-based and showed further deepening of response after the transplant. And of course, that raises all kinds of questions about the need for additional chemotherapy besides the transplant. It also raises questions in my mind. The standard of induction prior to transplant is four cycles. And that four cycles is really completely arbitrary. It was probably done during the era of vincristine, doxorubicin, and dexamethasone. It took four months to get insurance approval. So we did four cycles. But the real question is, is that really enough chemotherapy flanking the transplant? Maybe those patients need six, eight cycles of therapy to maximize their response. And since that isn't the way we're doing things, we're doing four before, and then we're doing consolidation after to maximize what they get from novel agent-based standard dose therapy. And also, just to clarify your thoughts in general about maintenance, Maury, 
Are there any situations where you do use it? Any situations with this man where you would have used specifically if, for example, if he had less of a response? So there's no question that some patients you're not expecting a protracted relapse-free survival. We have a number of predictors of patients who post-transplant are not expected to have a very durable response. And in those patients, even though there is no data to support the decision, I find it very, very difficult to sit on my thumbs waiting for the other shoe to drop because I just know they're not going to do well either because they have true adverse cytogenetics or had circulating myeloma cells at diagnosis or a whoppingly high LDH or a profoundly distorted free light chain ratio. Some of the predictors that we know are high numbers of S-phase cells at the time where we feel that no matter how deep the response is post-transplant, it won't be durable. And so we all in our practices make decisions that we hope are in the best interest of the patient. And there are sometimes, even though the patients will have their minds made up, I'll start discussing and maybe leaning on them a little bit regarding my concerns with regard to the biology of their disease. So one final question, then we'll go on to the next case. Eric, you know, one of the themes that we kind of want to get into today is why is taking care of patient X very, very different than taking care of patient Y who has the exact same tumor situation but is a different person, a different attitude, a different life situation what are some of the things about taking care of him that have stuck out in your mind the most? You know, I was talking to Dr. Gertz about this as we were driving into the clinic today. This is a patient who is very involved in his care, who has tried to comb through the literature in his layman's way and tried to understand it and has actually done a remarkably good job at sort of consolidating that information in his mind. I find that patient is both rewarding and sometimes challenging. Those patients occasionally will have some misconceptions about care or they'll they'll read something and maybe misunderstand something about the sequence of treatments or the way the treatment should be done, and that requires a little bit of time and energy to explain to them. On the other hand, I find that those patients tend to be very, very compliant, and in this gentleman's case, very involved in his care to the point that he was an active participant in the discussion between his transplant physician and myself, and I thought that that was very helpful. What kind of work did this man do? He was a contractor of some kind, you know, some kind of construction work. Just a couple of points that I learned in this. This gentleman had a complication during his transplant. He went into atrial fibrillation, and I learned from Dr. Gertz today something I did not know, that that's a fairly common complication around the time of transplant. What percent did you say? It's certainly a minimum of 10%, and although I told Eric that we do 60% of our transplants as an outpatient, the development of supraventricular tachyarrhythmia is a big reason to admit patients. There you go. What's the pathophysiology? Why do you see it? Oh, they usually get it in the midst of their febrile illness. So you've got someone who's 70-some years old, temp hits 39.5, volume status is equivocal, they haven't been drinking as an outpatient, and wham. And, you know, during it, they have diarrhea, their potassium, their magnesium's all over the place, and they become unstable, and it doesn't recur after the hospital. 
There was one more aspect to this case I wanted to bring up. This gentleman, as I mentioned, had a skeletal survey prior to any treatment. It was actually done when he was hospitalized that showed no lytic lesions whatsoever. But subsequently, actually almost found incidentally on CT scans done for something else, he had lesions found, not big ones, but lesions found in the sacrum, in the thoracic spine, and in his foramen magnum. And it was tempting to me to say, uh oh, this must mean his treatment isn't working, that he's got these new lytic lesions. And you and I didn't talk about this directly, Dr. Gertz, but I got the sense that that may have been something that was there at the onset and was just manifesting itself with these more sensitive tests. Yes, I think that obviously our standard of the bone survey is a wholly insensitive test for truly imaging for bone disease in myeloma.